Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. It's our hope that this message would encourage you in your faith and would help you to get to know God's love, grace, and mercy in a personal way. If you have any questions on the sermon or would like to know more about Maranatha, please visit us on the web at maranathafreelutheran.com or call our church office at 218-498-2808. Thank you, and may God bless. Good morning, Maranatha. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. In our modern world, with all of our modern conveniences, uh, like possessing instant access to, to news and entertainment with just the, the scroll of a thumb and like ordering ahead at a fast food restaurant and picking it up in the drive through lane, uh, in such a fast-paced society, virtues like endurance and persistence have nearly gone extinct. If we don't get instant results, we lack the fortitude to see something through to the end, right? How's that diet plan going that you promised to start the new year off with, right? <laughs> or that promise to exercise each day or to read more or to, you know, whatever, right? Fill in your own blank there. And I'm not just picking on you. I'm speaking from personal experience. Uh, you could just ask my wife. I am the king of unfinished projects and unresolved resolutions. Endurance, persistence. We'll be talking about the, both of those things as we look at 2 Timothy uh, this morning. Last week, Pastor Lloyd covered the first half of chapter 3, and, and one of the main points that, that Paul was trying to emphasize with Timothy in those verses was the reality that in the last days, there would be difficult days and hard times when people would oppose the truth. Uh, last week, Pastor Lloyd mentioned uh, again that we are living in the last days, and, and difficult times would be characteristic of those last days. Uh, if you have your Bibles, look back at chapter 3, just starting at verse 2, and just, just to keep fresh in our minds some of the things that Paul was dealing with, here's this long list of, of things that will continue to wreak havoc in the last days. Paul says this, For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedience to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. <laughs> Happy things, right? Fun times. Pastor Lloyd covered those very well last week, so I'm not going to do anything more other than mention them and ask that you keep that context in the back of your mind as we, as we go on to this next section and these next verses this morning. In the midst of all the doom and gloom in the last days, Paul gives Timothy some hope, some encouragement for the last days. Paul gives Timothy two ways to endure, two ways to find strength, two ways to continue steadfast and unmovable in an ever-changing culture. We're going to look at this text in two sections this morning. First, in verses 10 through 13, Paul tells Timothy to find strength in the Lord's presence. And then in verses 14 through 17, he says to find strength in the Lord's word. So verses, first, verses 10 through 13, finding strength in the Lord's presence. Would you stand with me if you're able as I read 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 through 13, reading in Jesus' name. Paul writes, 
You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me in Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, Lord God, this is your word. Your word is truth. We ask that you would again sanctify us in that truth. And as we read from Psalm 19 today, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of every present heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. In difficult days, Paul instructs Timothy to find strength for endurance in the Lord's presence. And we'll work out all of that as we go through this first section. But before Paul really gets there, he he reminds Timothy of Timothy's own discipleship by Paul. Timothy's discipleship. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, and so on and so on. A total of, of nine different characteristics of Paul that Timothy knew well. When we think of following somebody these days, we, we generally think of, of, think of it in, in terms of social media, right? You follow a page or a person and you get notifications about when they tweet or when they post new content and then you soak up that content, right? You are, whether or not you know it, you are a disciple of that person as you follow them, as you learn from them. Paul knew that putting your faith in a specific individual and drawing ultimate inspiration from that person is bound to lead to trouble. People fail. And so he wasn't advocating that Timothy mimic him or mirror him, but Paul had over the years mentored, had discipled, had trained Timothy. And Paul reminds Timothy not to forget those things that he learned from him. And one of the things that Timothy had followed and had learned from Paul was Paul's persecutions. Paul's persecutions. You have followed my persecutions and my sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, he said in verse 11. And the three instances of persecution that Paul mentions here, these cities, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, these things took place on Paul's first missionary journey. They're recorded in Acts chapter 13 and 14. And those chapters tell of Barnabas and Paul and their, their missionary journey through what we call Turkey nowadays as the gospel spread. And in each one of those three cities that Paul mentions, he and Barnabas were, were run out of town and in great fear for their lives. They go on to the next place. In Lystra, Paul and Barnabas were, were pursued and Paul was even stoned and left for dead. These are not the only persecutions that Paul endured. There were others. In 2 Corinthians, Paul summarized them this way. He said, With far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death, five times I was whipped, he said, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, and on and on he goes. Dangerous from my own people, dangerous from the Gentiles, dangerous from false brothers. Paul had quite the resume of persecution. 
So why, of all the things, could he have mentioned to Timothy? Why did he mention these three incidences uh, that took place probably a long time ago as Paul is writing this, probably 20 years prior? And why did he bring those to Timothy? Most likely, Paul mentions Antioch and Iconium and Lystra uh, because Lystra was actually Timothy's hometown. Timothy had, in all likelihood, been a boy or maybe was in his early teens when Paul was in Lystra on his first missionary journey. He would have heard and maybe even witnessed Paul's preaching and healing of a man who had been disabled from birth. Timothy, who was a child of a Greek father and a Jewish mother, had been raised by his mother and his grandmother in the Jewish faith. And when Paul came, this, this family, grandmother, mother, and grandson, all became Christians. But whatever the reason was that, that Paul mentioned these three specific instances of persecution, the reality which Paul spells out is that persecution is a given. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. As we live out our Christian faith and our convictions in the public square, oppression will come. Oppression will come. And sometimes that oppression comes violently. During the last year, more than 360 million Christians endured high levels of persecution and discrimination for their faith. 360 million. That's larger than the population of the United States. And last year, over, uh, over 2,100 churches were attacked, were vandalized. Over 4,500 Christians were officially detained just with the charge of being Christian. And over 5,600 Christians were killed for their faith. Those numbers are, are staggering, aren't they? But they're not unexpected. All who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Sometimes, however, opposition to Christianity isn't openly hostile. Often in the relative safety and stability that we enjoy here in the upper Midwest, we don't see violent persecutions and sufferings like like Paul mentioned, like our brothers and sisters across the globe are going through. We might not see it in our own lives. And so we maybe come to Paul's declaration that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We come to that with one of two things. Maybe, maybe we think Paul was exaggerating and was using a hyper, hyperbole, hyperbole, that's a tough word, hyperbole here. Or maybe we, we aren't thinking we're, we're not living godly enough lives and maybe we're, we're not being open enough as a Christian and so we need to do more to be experienced persecution for our faith. In the 5th century, Jerome uh, made this helpful distinction between different kinds of martyrs. He said there are red martyrs and there are white martyrs. Red martyrs are, are those who shed their blood for the gospel, those who give their lives for the sake of Jesus. A white martyr then is one who, for the sake of Jesus, uh, endures ordinary, everyday persecutions, mockings, scorn, uh, shaming, those sorts of things. And in the United States, especially here in Minnesota, we've been relatively free from from persecution and from suffering for the sake of the gospel. And and praise the Lord, we shouldn't be praying for persecution to come (laughs) to us. We should be enjoying what God has given us in the here and the now. 
Praise the Lord for that. But I do think that for us as Christians, it, it is going to get a lot harder for us to take a stand for the gospel, to live godly lives. Maybe the government will say that churches and, and Christian schools and, and things like that no longer qualify for tax-exempt status. Okay, we can get by paying those taxes. Maybe there will, will come a day when we can no longer download uh, the Bible from the app store because someone is offended by it. Okay, we can go back to paper Bibles. <laughs> Maybe there will come a day when we have to make a choice even between our employment and our Christian faith. Now it gets a little bit harder, doesn't it? Do I feed my family or do I take a stand for Jesus? Maybe a time is coming when the government will, will seek to restrict pastors and churches who hold to a biblical traditional view of marriage and no longer permit us to conduct weddings. And I could go on and on. And I've often wondered how ready the church is for persecution of that sort. It's my prayer that as a church and as individuals within the church that we would be bold witnesses for Christ, ready and willing to be red martyrs giving our lives or even white martyrs giving our livelihood for his sake and for his name. As Paul sits and recounts his life here to, second, or to Timothy in 2 Timothy, he, he's reminded that in the past, during each and every one of his persecutions and suffering, the Lord had rescued him from all of them. And again, remember the context here of 2 Timothy. As Paul is writing this letter, he, he sits in prison, in a Roman prison cell, the cell that was usually reserved for the worst of revolutionaries and rebels. He is within months, possibly even weeks or days of his own death. And prob Paul probably knew that barring a miracle from the Lord, he would, he would die shortly. Maybe the Lord wouldn't physically rescue Paul this time around. But Paul was still confident in the Lord's ultimate deliverance for him. Later on in chapter 4, verse 18, Paul says this, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. I don't think Paul was one of these eternal optimists who, who never considered the reality of the situation and, and think everything would always work out. I think Paul was a realist. He, he likely believed that he would not see the outside of that prison cell ever again. He knew that this was the end, but yet he had faith, full faith in the Lord's ultimate deliverance. The Lord will rescue me and bring me safely into his eternal kingdom, Paul was convinced. The Lord's rescue of Paul this time around would look differently. It won't be a physical one, but Paul's soul was in good hands. And all throughout these, these persecutions, these sufferings, the Lord's promises to his saints down through the ages still stood. And Paul probably likely remembered them. Things like Isaiah 43, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flame shall not consume you. Promises like Psalm 46, where God reminds us, be still, be still and know that I am God. Yes, the Lord would rescue Paul. And before that happened, the Lord's presence, his spirit, 
would be with Paul. And the Lord's presence will be with you as well as you go through difficult days, days of trial, through, through the ups and downs of life, the struggles of life, the, the temptations to sin that are there as Christians. As you go through these things, as you go through these difficult days, continue to look to the Lord, look to his presence in your life. His promises will never fail you. Find strength in the promise of the Lord's presence. And the second way that that Paul instructed Timothy to endure in difficult days was to find strength in the Lord's word. Find strength in the Lord's word. Look at verses 14 through 17 with me. Again, Paul writing to Timothy and he says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred, sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Find strength in the word of the Lord. In difficult days, Paul reminded Timothy, Timothy, you have a strong foundation. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. The strong foundation that Timothy had was established for him very early on. I mentioned it earlier, but both his his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice were strong believers. Both of these ladies had a major impact on Timothy's own faith and his faith formation. And I want to say this to those of you who are parents and grandparents. Don't ever, ever downplay the impact that you have on your children's lives or your grandchildren's life. Every few years, it seems, some researcher somewhere is asking children and teens uh, to rank who in their life has been the greatest influence, the greatest spiritual influence as well. And over the years, uh, the results have been really surprisingly consistent. It's not pastors, it's not teachers, it's not coaches, it's not Instagram influencers who are having the biggest impact on our teens' lives. Do you know who is? Mom and dad. Mom and dad, you guys are having the greatest impact. Grandma and grandpa, you guys as well. Those top, those four names, mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, you constantly rank in the top five for, for who is being a big influence in their kids' lives. You have that opportunity to pour into your kids, your grandkids. Do not downplay that impact. Keep at it, even if you feel like you're smashing your head against a brick wall, because <laughs> sometimes it's going to feel like that, isn't it? In verse 15, Paul reminds Timothy how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. The Greek word that the ESV here translates as as childhood uh, could actually better be translated as from infancy. From infancy, Timothy, you have known the Lord's word. And as a parent of young kids, I know that the lines of distinction between infant and baby and toddler and child often overlap and get kind of blurry, right? Um, My older three are all children. 
And I know that, but uh, and somewhere along the lines, our two-year-old stopped being a toddler somewhere there. But, but yesterday, I bought uh, big boy underwear for him in the baby section at Walmart. <laughs> I'll never figure that out, right? <laughs> but, but on the other hand, our, our youngest is now eight months, and he's definitely not a newborn. He isn't toddling around yet, but he doesn't seem like a baby anymore. That's probably because he's just such a chunk anyway, right? <laughs> In Scripture, the word that Paul uses here in verse 15, brephos, is used to describe extremely small, extremely young children, like infants and babies who are still in their mother's womb. Uh, This word is used to describe John the Baptist when he leaps in in Elizabeth's womb at Mary's greeting. It describes all the babies, all the infants that Jesus blesses throughout the Gospels. And this, by the way, this is one of the reasons why we bring our our children, our our newborn, our infants to the Lord in baptism. We believe that God gives the gift of faith even to the youngest of people. Timothy, from his earliest days, from his infancy, had known faith and had knew the scriptures. He had a strong foundation. In verse 16, then, Paul reminds Timothy of Scripture's divine origin. Scripture's divine origin. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Scripture, the Bible that you are holding, is breathed out by God. This means that Scripture's source, Scripture's origin, is with God Himself. Peter talked about Scripture's divine origin this way. He said, Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit carried these men and the words that they spoke, directing and blowing them whichever way the Spirit pleased. Sort of like a Chinese spy balloon is blown by the wind across our continent, right? The Holy Spirit is the one who's directing, who's breathing out the Word of God. Uh, There's an author, Paul Feinberg, said this about Scripture being breathed out by God. He said, The Scriptures are God's speech. God is the author of what is recorded, and in the entirety of Scripture is the oracle of God. Scripture is thoroughly permeated with the breath of God. I like that. We often describe Scripture using three in words, uh, three words that start with the I-N, inspired, infallible, and inerrant, right? Inspiration is kind of what we've just talked about, God directing, God breathing out Scripture either through direct revelation like he did with Moses on Mount Sinai or through the Holy Spirit as, as he moved in the hearts of these human authors. Inspiration has nothing to do with this sudden light bulb moment or epiphany for the authors. Instead, again, that idea is that God has has breathed his character, his nature into Scripture and, and directed the authors as to what to write. Inspired, infallible. This means that the Bible does not fail and it cannot be wrong. Commentator Thomas Lee put it this way. He says, the Bible does not mislead. It is a sure, reliable and is fully trustworthy in all matters in which it speaks. Inerrant, infallible, and the next one is then inerrancy, right? Inspiration, infallibility, inerrancy, and this one goes along with infallibility. Uh, Lee goes on to describe inerrancy this way, that the Bible is free from all falsehood and mistakes, and it provides a safeguard for the confidence that Scripture is reliable in all of its assertions. 
We can put our trust in God's word, knowing that when it says something, it is not misleading us, but it is speaking the truth about the nature of God, about uh, salvation, our fallen condition, our redemption in Christ, and, and any other truth that Scripture expounds on. And because the Bible is inspired, infallible, and inerrant, the Bible is also authoritative, authoritative for our lives. The Bible has the power to tell us what is right, what is wrong, and how we ought to live our lives. Just as the U.S. Constitution is the guiding document for our nation, Scripture is the guiding document for our lives as individuals and as a congregation as well. The Bible has the authority to guide, to direct our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. Not just once a week when you come in through those doors on Sunday morning, but every day, every moment of our lives. For Christians, Scripture is, how we, is to inform how we engage in any and every situation, how we interact with coworkers and, and customers at work, uh, how we deal with classmates and teachers in school, how we connect with our close friends and, and with total strangers. Because Scripture is inspired, infallible, inerrant, it is also authoritative. Paul also reminds Timothy of Scripture's divine purpose. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And first and foremost, I'd probably be remiss if I didn't say this. First and foremost, the purpose of Scripture is, as Paul says in, in verse 15, to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The Scripture, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, is telling one story. It's the true story. We might say the true narrative of redemption. It's about God's creation who went astray. It's about how he planned to bring us back into a right relationship with him. The whole of the Old Testament then sets the stage for that redemption through the Levitical system of sacrifices. That foundation is laid for the ultimate sacrifice who was coming. The Old Testament prophets kept looking ahead, seeing glimpses of this salvation and the Messiah who would bring it. And then the New Testament then right, tells the narrative of the Messiah, Jesus, who came and gave his life as a ransom for your sins, redeeming you from your sin, restoring to you to a right relationship with your Creator. As Jesus Christ hung on the cross, he became that sacrifice for your sins, the sacrifice that the Old Testament pointed towards. His death in your place and on your behalf, paid for, covered, washed away your sin. Through his resurrection, he proved once and for all then his victory over sin and secured your redemption. And when we, by grace, through faith, receive and believe in Jesus, we are made into new creations by our Creator. We are cleansed from our sin. We're restored to a right relationship with our Lord. Scripture makes us wise for salvation. This is the, the primary purpose of Scripture. And in addition to bringing us to Jesus, verse 16 says there are four very useful, very profitable dimensions of Scripture that, that work themselves out in our lives. And the first is this, is teaching. All Scripture is profitable for teaching. 
the scriptures, God-inspired scriptures, tell us and inform us about, first and foremost, about Jesus. But then it also tells us how we are to live our lives. In his word, God tells his children how we are to conduct ourselves, what he requires of us. His word informs and educates us in what his will is. The second one Paul lists in verse 16 is reproof. And reproof is an old-fashioned word we, we don't use anymore. Uh, but it means to show somebody their error, their failure, uh, their sin, and to warn them of the consequences of continuing on in that way, the way that things are. Reproof gets us back on the right track. Um, the other half of reproof, the other side of the coin, if you will, is, is correction then. That's the next thing Paul mentions. Correction is to show somebody how to fix what's wrong. And we need both, don't we? Uh, we often know our errors. We know that we are a failure. We know that we need correcting, but we also need somebody or something, the Word of God, to show us how to get back on the right track. Teaching, reproof, correction, training. The final aspect of Scripture's purpose is for training us in righteousness. Righteousness here is a synonym. It means the same thing as godly living. Scripture teaches us. Scripture trains us. Scripture disciplines us in how to live rightly. Training in righteousness involves putting the teaching, the, teaching, the reproof, the correction into action. Being disciplined enough to carry out the plan that God has breathed out into his word. <laughs> Scripture's charge then, its, its command therefore is, is this in verse 17. So that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Scripture's charge, his, its command to you is good works. <laughs> so that... The Lord God breathed out his word, making us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. That's first and foremost. And uh, the Lord God breathed out his word to teach, to reprove, to correct, to chain, train his children. And also in verse 17, Paul says that the Lord God has breathed out his word so that we might be complete, equipped for every good work. When we think of things being complete, we think of it being done, right? Finished. Uh, none of those half-finished projects that you lack endurance to finally bring to completion. Nothing more needs to be done with it, right? The, the project or the report you've been working on for months has finally been turned in. There will be no more additions or changes to it. Yet as we, we, we look at our own lives, we realize and we recognize that we will, there will never be a time when we are complete or perfect in that regard, right? There are always going to be rough edges that we need smoothing out or, or parts of us that aren't in total alignment with God's word. Until he receives us into his eternal kingdom, he has never done working on us. And that's the, the Greek word that's translated here for complete. Is, it's kind of a fun one, artiros, and it means that something is, is well-fitted for some function and it's able to all demands. The word competent or sufficient seems to capture this idea of something being complete here. Uh, the, the standard isn't some unattainable benchmark of perfection. Through God's word, we are good enough. We are sufficient for the tasks that he has called us to. 
And we're sufficient, we're competent for those tasks of every good work. The clear teaching of Scripture that we, is that we are not saved by our good works. Hear me out on that, right? We cannot earn, we cannot merit our salvation, our way into eternal life. Our salvation comes to us by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But yet, now as we lived as redeemed children of the Lord, he has called us to do good works, to show love and kindness and compassion to the hurting, to be a friend to the friendless, to help a neighbor through a rough patch, to be there for a friend, to sacrificially love your wife or your husband, to unconditionally love and nurture your children, and to do that in real, tangible ways. The Lord God hasn't saved us so we can sit idly by but so that we can share the good news with others and to be the hands and feet of Jesus to a world that is lost and that is hurting. And this morning we, we have the privilege, we have the opportunity to partake in Holy Communion. And while Paul communion is another way of finding strength in difficult days. And as we gather together here in a few moments at the railing, at the altar, alongside of our brothers and sisters in Christ to receive the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, we also receive the forgiveness of our sins and we are strengthened by his grace. In whatever difficulty you face, be strengthened this morning in the assurance that in Jesus your sins are washed clean and that you are loved by your Father in heaven. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, again, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. And we ask that you continue to be with us this morning as we um, partake in communion. Lord, strengthen us. Uh, we need your forgiveness. We need your grace in our lives. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.